0: to Hebrews If you're just visiting today we're not a cold church we're just following the rules for a season of potential plague or whatever it is the uh I was thinking I think the birds sang that song about a time for every purpose under heaven didn't they, they Did a pretty good job the bird yeah BYRDS Yeah birds time to embrace a time to refrain from embracing we're entering into that season where a very affectionate church that we are has to look like a bunch of cold fish so fist bumps maybe and just love the brethren by being aware of everything My sister sent me a text and said, funny, I've been using hand soap all the time before this went, was trending. <laughs> so, carry on. We see Jesus, increment 10. The Greek phrase is ekathyson endexia tes megalosunes s hupsiloes. Seated at the right hand of the majesty in the highest heights, that's where we see him. One exegete I don't remember exactly who, I've read a lot of commentaries on Hebrews translated the phrase, "God spoke to us in a sun," as "God spoke to us sunwise, sunwise." Well, God, who has spoken to us sunwise, this writer, who is a pastor theologian, that's what PTs should be now, pastor theologian, he continues to speak sunwise, S O N, throughout this epistle. God has spoken, and he still speaks sunwise. The entire sermon in this letter may be summed up. As all the New Testament can be. As the father saying. This is my son. In hearing this voice. We look. And we see Jesus. Our attentiveness is riveted. It should be. We're focused on him throughout. We are occupied with him, engaged with him, absorbed with him. We gaze as in a mirror at him and are transformed into his image from glory to glory by the spirit. Paul put it that way in Second Corinthians 3.18. In Hebrews, believers are portrayed as beholders. This is not a manic obsession that we're talking about. A manic obsession that gives rise to fanaticism. It's the heart's delight in the Lord. In the proper object of our worship. An occupation that leads to transformation. For as the principle goes. We become like what we principally behold. We become like what we primarily behold. With what or whom we are primarily occupied. What or whom we behold in worship is what we begin to resemble. Or, who? we begin to manifest or even better who begins to be manifested in us. Paul, the apostle speaks of believers in Jesus gazing with unveiled faces, contrasting us with Moses who had a veil over his face, gazing with unveiled faces at the glory of the Lord as in a mirror 2 Corinthians 3.18. Then down the road a little bit in 2 Corinthians 4.11, what does he say? He speaks of the life of Jesus being manifested in our mortal bodies. The mortal bodies of the beholders. These worshipers of the Lord. Now, Psalm 115, and you can look at it at your own leisure. Psalm 115 is one I want to resort to. At the moment, it's instructive on many levels and for many reasons. And we're going to see this not only in today's increment, but future ones, perhaps. In Psalm 115, my translation from the Greek text reads like this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy and truth. Lest the nations around us say... Where is their God? But our God is in the heavens above. In the heavens and on earth, he has done whatever he pleased. This writer went on to describe the idol gods of the surrounding nations. In contrast to the omnipresent and omnipotent God of Israel, this psalm composer describes the idols of the nations which are evidently dead images of created beings, mostly corruptible man. So in Psalm 115, four through seven, he says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths, but they will not be made to speak. They have eyes, but they do not, will not be caused to see. They have ears, but they will not hear. They have nostrils, but they will never be able to smell. They have hands and will not feel. Feet they have and will not walk around. They will not even make a sound with their throats. Then he concludes with this. Let all who make these idols and all who trust in them become like them. The principle pertains here. People become like what they behold in worship. This is pertinent when we consider the title for our present series. We see Jesus. Ever living at the right hand of the father. We behold him in worship for Jesus is the proper object of worship as believing and no longer doubting thomas he's famously known as doubting thomas i call him believing and no longer doubting thomas as everyone will be when they see him as thomas said as he beheld the riven and risen jesus my lord and my god john 20:28 20, when we finally see him in glory. When he comes with salvation, we will be like him. When we see him, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. First John three, two. So Psalm 115 breaks in with the Psalmist praying that glory and honor goes to Yahweh. Yahweh. And to Yahweh's name and not to us. Not to us. The more you grow in grace, the more you despise the idea that any glory would come to you. More specifically, he prays that God would glorify his name because of his mercy and his faithfulness. For those reasons, because of his mercy, which endures forever and his faithfulness, which justifies all, as we've learned. Faithfulness being another name for truth in this context. In Hebrews, God is the majesty in the highest part of the heavens, and Jesus is the son seated at the right hand of the majesty. As the psalmist said, God has done what he pleased in the earth. God has done what he pleased in the earth. Why? He sent his son who became the complete once and for all sacrifice for sins, whose offering of himself put away sin. In other words, the son made purification of sins, as we read in Hebrews one three, and then sat down. At the right side of the majesty in the heights, not on a separate throne, but on the same throne of the majesty at the right hand side of heaven. And God has done all that he pleased in the heavens on earth. As the psalmist writes, we know what that means now because of the son who hung hoisted up between the heavens and the earth on a cross because of that all things and all beings in the heavens and on earth are reconciled to one another and to god god has indeed done all that he pleased in the son in whom he is completely pleased this is my son i am completely pleased with him matthew 3:17 Jesus is the son who is seated now at the right side of the eternal majesty in the highest heights. That's a pretty big deal. There he bears the name above all names. All the names of the angels, all the names of the prophets, all the names of history. And there he ever lives with incorruptible life. As our merciful and faithful high priest, merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews two seventeen. God is glorified for his mercy and faithfulness, as the Psalmist prayed, in Jesus, who is now a merciful and faithful high priest for us. Jesus is our faithful and high merciful high priest has inherited a name. What does that mean? How does he inherit a name? It is greater than the names of all the angels. He is the human and divine expression of God's mercy and truth. Of God's everlasting mercy and universal faithfulness. Of God's unrestricted beneficence and kindness. And of God's passionate philanthropy and love for humankind. His unrestricted beneficence and his full-on philanthropy. At the right hand of the majesty in the heights, the highest heights, the absolute highest heights of the highest heaven. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. To you, Lord be glory and honor to your name, not to us. God has answered the petition of the Psalm composer of Psalm 115. He has made glory come to his name for the name of Yahweh is Yeshua. The name of the Lord is Jesus. He has also answered the petition of Jesus who prayed, and the prayer is recorded in John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. The hour that had come was the hour of the cross, the hour when the son would give eternal life to all that God had given him. And all that God had given him was all flesh. This is the heart of the message today, the soteriological heart, the saving heart of the gospel. The father, in that hour, gave that the son would give eternal life to all that God had given him. Whereas the scripture says, the grace of God appeared, made an epiphany, salvation to all of humanity. Salvation for all of humanity. It doesn't say offering salvation for all of humanity, which would emphasize a human choice on your part. It says, the grace of God appeared, colon, salvation for all humanity. Exclamation point. Close quotes. I can't emphasize this enough. And again in Titus, that's Titus 2.11. Down the road in Titus 3, 4, and 5a, it says, When the beneficence and philanthropia, philanthropy of God our Savior appeared, He saved us when the beneficence, the mercy and the faithfulness, the beneficence and the philanthropy of God appeared. When did it appear in Christ and him crucified? I refer you to the last message on Wednesday for anyone who has seen me. Jesus said has seen the father, but anyone who has seen Jesus crucified has seen the father Most clearly. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Anyone who sees me, Jesus says, sees my father. We see Jesus, so we see the father. Anyone who sees me, says Jesus, high and lifted up, crucified. Sees the father most clearly. For God is love. And this is love. This is how it's demonstrated. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his only eternally begotten son to be the propitiation for our sins so that we might live through him. We love, yeah, because he loved us first. He who sees Jesus sees the father. He who sees Jesus Christ in him crucified sees the father most clearly for in that act God has spoken in his son. And in that act God has said, I love you. Hebrews seems to skip right past the resurrection and assume it and then portrays the son exalted. But the very fact that he seems to skip the resurrection forces us to think about it all the more intently. That's a wonderful device of this brilliant teacher. I'm going to be presenting a second theory that I'm almost very impressed with. I presented the theory that this could have been written to believers in Jerusalem, but you know what? I'm going to just put this to you now, just as something you can think about. This may well have been written to a house church in Rome around the time of Nero's persecution and the fire of Rome to a house church and the house church might just be that of Achilla and Priscilla and the audience of this first epistle might have been 15 or 20 people. Didn't have to be to a mega church a house church of 15 or 20 people. And I'm going to present a case. It's, it's been made pretty much by a man named William Lane who took 12 years on Hebrews just to do a commentary. But there's a good reason to think this. So you DVD groups out there, just if you think you're just a handful of people, well, you'd be worthy of a letter like Hebrews. But we'll be making, we'll be presenting that just so that you can think about it and do a little dialectic in your own mind. As Hebrews 2.3 says this. Well, let's first reiterate. When the beneficence and philanthropy of God our Savior appeared, Jesus Christ and him crucified, he saved us. When did he save you? I'd have to ask that. When did he you? when you walked down an aisle and committed your life to God? Or was it when God committed his life to you? When his beneficence and philanthropy appeared. Evangelists make a big mistake when they insist on sinners dedicating themselves to the Lord without first explaining how the Lord has dedicated himself to us. For self-revelation of God is the self-dedication of God. And the self-dedication of God is revealed in the one-time sacrifice of his son. When that beneficence appeared, he saved us. As Hebrews 2.3 says, how will we escape? How will we escape? Which we've already seen means, how will we be saved? How will we be saved if we neglect or reject so great a salvation? (laughs) What's the writer saying there? What he means is, there is no other salvation. So, how are you going to be saved by any other salvation than that which has already been done? How are you going to be saved? There is no other salvation than that which God has already made effective in Jesus and by the sons once and for all sacrifice for sins. I read a small article recently on Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. I'm sorry to blaspheme here in Pittsburgh, but, but evidently he's had a, An irreconcilable difference within his family. And he was asked why finally, and he said, I just can't believe in the God that they speak of that he would send a large percentage of his people and his creation to an everlasting hell. Just can't believe it. Aaron, here's your message there is no other salvation. Than that which is already made effective in Jesus and by the Son's once and for all sacrifice for sins. So, my favorite historical fiction character, the Deerslayer, also known as Hawkeye, also known as Natty Bumpo, also known by the French Hurons as Le Long Carabine, the long carabine, the long rifle. The Deerslayer was right when he told his Mohegan friend, Chinkachkook, There's been a great deed of salvation done. And Peter was right when he boldly pro- proclaimed before the Council of Sa- Sadducees, the Council, the Sanhedrin, he said, This Jesus, this Jesus, Is the stone despised by you builders, the stone rejected by you contractors, who has become the cornerstone without which there ain't no building? There's no building without this cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. You see, this message is two edged, this is a two edged sword. There is salvation for all, but there's salvation only in one. There's an inclusivity, and that's offensive to some people, but if that's not enough, there's an exclusivity that's offensive to the rest of the people. There's only salvation. He goes on to say, I love this boldness of Peter. He was rejected by you builders, who has become the cornerstone without which the building cannot even exist. And there is salvation and no one else for there is no other name to your name and not to us. There is no other name under heaven spoken among humankind whereby we must be saved. If there is no other salvation than that which has been done in the sun, And if there is no other name under heaven given and spoken among human beings by which we must be saved, then how will we be saved if we neglect the only salvation and the only name by which we must be saved? In other words, Hebrews 2, 3 is not a fearful question. It's a logical one. Later on in Hebrews 6, he says, how are you going to get to maturity By going away from maturity. How are you going to get to become perfected as a beholder and a worshiper by the one-time sacrifice if you're thinking there are more sacrifices to be performed? How are you going to go on to maturity, if God permits? By going away from maturity. How are you going to... How would we ever be saved... if we neglected the only way to be saved. We have been saved. So not only has there been a great deed of salvation done, I picture Lelong Carbine leaning on his long rifle with which he never missed, speaking to his Mohican friend, the last of the Mohicans, Chingachgook, who says pretty much to him, what do you pale faces believe? See, everybody was a terrible racist back then. They used terms like pale face or red man or whatever. They talked to each other and they loved each other and they spoke in terms that were not intended to be offensive. Send somebody under under an umbrella. Some easily triggered pajama boy today couldn't handle that. Oh, for one thing, he's leaning on a gun. Yeah, because otherwise he doesn't eat, and neither do his friends. Well, never mind. I could go on for hours on that one. I just just don't really like the world the way it is right now. But I can just picture him saying, well, there's been a great deed of salvation done sarpent he called him the great Serpent. the great serpent was his name that's what chingachuk meant and that will enable all men to be saved and he said so i know one day you'll be a christian i'm not going to try to convert you but i there's been a salvation deed done it's done and you can imagine all the preachers and all the churches in the pioneer of america the pioneering of america none of which probably said that except for a woodsman (laughs) not only has there been a great deed of salvation done but the one who accomplished so great a salvation for all of humanity is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high the majesty on high is what we call a reverent circumlocution it's a way of speaking around the name for God which is a Jewish kind of convention In the Greek text it's Tes Megala Sunes en Hupselois. The Hebrew equivalent is Hagdula Bam Romim Hagdula Bam Romim. The extreme height to which we look to see the majesty on high and his son reveals that the universe came about through vertical causation, not horizontal causality. We'll be speaking of this more as we get into the cosmology of Hebrews 1, 10 and following. Universal redemption also proceeds from a high, from on high. There's a vertical causality to our great salvation. It was wrought in the weakest center. Creation proceeds from the weakest of all who is also the greatest of all. You wouldn't know it. They rejected the stone that the builders, the builders rejected the stone that became the cornerstone because you don't just look at someone weak and the weakest image you can have is a man nailed to a tree and beaten beyond recognition with a crown of thorns, crying out. I can't think, what's he going to do for you? But as they're even discovering in physics, the least of all is actually the greatest of all. Creation and redemption proceeded from the one who was weakest of all. For he was crucified in the weakest weakness, asthenia, total strengthlessness. And yet he lives by the power of God, total omnipotence. Creation and redemption proceeds from the weakest possible center and out from it, power. There's a vertical causality, which even the smartest of the physicists have discovered. So they've got to correct some of the idols of our time, including a guy named uh, Albert Einstein. He didn't have it all right. Or Stephen Hawking. There's dialogues going on. Discoveries have been made since then, you know. You don't know everything if you know Einstein or Hawking. You don't know everything if you know this. There's beginning to be a great discovery, for example, by Wolfgang Smith of vertical causation. Some people call it the Lagos. He was crucified in the weakest weakness in 2 Corinthians 13 4, but he lives by the omnipotent power of God. He ever lives or lives forever in the power of an incorruptible life, says Hebrews 7:16, to make intercession for us to save us to the uttermost point in Hebrews 9, 725, rather to the point of bodily glorification, Philippians 3.20, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one to 55. He does this simply because his obedience unto the death of the cross led to exaltation in a body of glory. That the Son, also our great high priest, is at the right side of the majesty in the highest height of heaven, is also said to be, so far, the main point Jump over to 8.1 and we'll go into the third gear. The main point of the whole sum of this whole discourse all the way up to 8.1 shows just how important this right side of the majesty is as a theme, as a place to view Jesus. For in Hebrews 8.1, it says, the main point of what we have been saying, or kephale means the sum in summary, what I've been saying all the way up through 726, 727, 728 in 8.1 is that this, the high priest that we have, the high priest that we have is one who sat down. Same word as in Hebrews three on the right side of the throne of the majesty. This time he doesn't say in the heavens, he says, or in the heights, he says in the heavens. Entus uranois The main point of what we've been saying all the way up to now is the high priest that we have. You have to put the accent where it belongs. The high priest that we have is one who sat down on the right side of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So here, this pastor theologian, we don't know who he is. We do know he's a he, that's about it. Hebrews 11, 31, 32. He uses the phrase entois uranois, meaning in the heavens, and that therefore makes the phrase in the heavens in one equivalent to the phrase in the heights, or on high, en hupsolois, in three. So this main point continues to be fanned out or expanded or elaborated after 8.1. Also, for example, contrasting our high priest with the priests of the Levitical order, the PT later writes, Hebrews 10.11. Jump there if you got your Bible. Hebrews 10.11. On the one hand, every priest That's the Levitical order under Moses' law. On the one hand, every priest stands daily, stands every day, ministering and offering over and over the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this one, our great high priest, our high priest, having offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right side of God. This time he doesn't say the majesty, this time he says God. As Hebrews 8.1 showed that the heights or the place on high where the sun sat down and is seated as being equivalent to the heavens. So here the majesty is revealed plainly to be God to theu. in all these three cases, the son also known as our high priest has sat down. You can proudly claim him as your priest. Incidentally, your high priest, your great high priest, our high priest, he sat down because the deed of salvation had been done. He sat down because the deed of salvation had been done. Has been done, Chinkachkuk. And he had done it. You know what he said when he had done it? To tell us that. It's finished God is the Lord who said to David's Lord sit at my right hand this son is that Lord David said the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord sit at my right hand that's where all this comes from Psalm 110 1 It's peppered through all of the New Testament. There was a very wealthy man in North Bennington, Vermont. And I asked one old Vermonter one time, I said, how'd he get rich? And he said, well, he struck gold out west. He came back to Vermont. And I said, he struck gold. And he said, yeah, but I'll tell you the real story. He filled up his shotgun with gold dust and shot it into a mountain. He peppered the mountain with gold dust, then sold the mountain. That's why he lives in Vermont, not Arizona, and Vermont, not Nevada. He came all the way back here. He sold a mountain peppered with gold dust. Well, the New Testament is peppered with Psalm 110. It's everywhere. Alluded to, sometimes quoted. You find it in Acts. You find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You find it in the epistles. You find it in Paul. You find it in Hebrews, but the Hebrews writer, this pastor theologian is the only one who innovated and then quoted Psalm one hundred ten four and said, Wait a minute, the same Lord that said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, meaning as my royal vice regent, until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. He also said to this same person, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You, already a king seated at my right hand, are also a priest forever. How do you become a priest forever? Well, that's what Hebrews answers. So I started with Psalm 115 on my own innovation, but there's an allusion here to another Psalm, Psalm 110, where in verse 1 of that Psalm, which is 109 in in the Septuagint, David wrote, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, the highest position in heaven until I place your enemies under your feet as a footrest. Now, when the father says this to the son, we will note that the feet are scarred through being pierced as they were nailed to a cross. So the father was very tender with the son and he said, I'm going to sit right here until I make all of your enemies never thought of this probably a resting place for those feet that were nailed to a tree. I'm going to give you a resting place for those feet. All his enemies under his feet. The majesty of Hebrews one, three is Yahweh the father. His son is the son in whom God has spoken to us definitively in these last days, whom God has appointed heir of everything in the heavens and earth and by whom he made the universe. It wasn't horizontal causality through crystals and cells. It was vertical causation of the father in the son just like salvation, vertical causation, where the weakest possible center of the universe, a crucified man, is the strength and omnipotence of the creation of a new creation through resurrection and exaltation. Not only that, but the son is the one who bears and carries all things by the word of his power to a redemptive and saving conclusion. Everything that happens. This son is the one who has made purification of sins by taking sin away. How would you purify someone of a disease? You take the disease away. How did he purify us from sin? He took the sin away. Once and for all, by his self-sacrifice and his self-sacrifice is the self-representation of God, the father and the father's self-dedication to us. We should never speak of our dedication to God before first speaking loudly and clearly and fully of God's self-dedication to us his total, not partial, self-dedication to us in son, literally. Only by understanding this will our self-dedication to God be complete and true and real. Only by understanding this will our self-dedication to God be true worship. For the father seeks such to worship him those who worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth that is Jesus. The allusion, allusion, not illusion, to Psalm 110 is peppered, as I said, throughout the New Testament. And it's used by multiple authors. But the Hebrews writer alludes also to Psalm 110.4 and even quotes it or portions of it so he allows the voice of God to echo and be heard afresh. This is my son, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5.6, 5, 5.10, 6.20, 7.17. So in Hebrews, the son whom the father tells to sit at his right hand is a royal son. He's also declared to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in Hebrews 1.3, it is son with no article. Who is seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. In Hebrews 8.1 and 10.12, the son is a high priest. Who is seated at the right of the majesty. Also known as God in the heavens. Hebrews 1.3 makes it clear that the son is seated. seated. Precisely because he's completed something. And the completion is that he has made purification for sins. Hebrews 10.12 makes it plain that he took away sins forever. Jesus is a priest forever because he's put away sin forever. Hebrews 9.26 says that Christ has appeared once at the junction of the eons to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This sacrifice of himself, listen carefully to this because this is really also the heart of the theological matter. The sacrifice of himself is the perfect self-revelation of God in self-dedication To us. If you see Jesus. You've seen the father. But if you see Jesus crucified. You see the father. Most clearly. You see God. Who is. Love. You hear God say. I love you. Such a great high priest sat down. Because he had accomplished. Such a great salvation. Such a high priest we have. You can hear the Jewish pastor theologian. Such a high priest we have. Such a great salvation we have. Such a great salvation for all. Because he tasted death for everyone. Now let's try this translation. Let's try this one on for fit. We're gonna. I'm a tailor now. I'm trying this on for fitting. But we're not done fitting. I'm going to take it away and just... Tuck it here and tug it there, cut it there, seam it here. It's not perfect yet, but let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. The first sentence, it's a complex sentence. doesn't end at 3, ends at 4. That'll give you some tracks where we're going to run on. Hebrews 1, 1. In many parts and in various ways long ago, God, who spoke provisionally to the fathers and the prophets in these last days, has spoken definitively to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he made the universe who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of God's invisible reality and who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective who has made purification for sins, who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become verse four as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's where we're going to take up next time in the times to come how does this son inherit a name doesn't he already have the name Yahweh well let's just start by by ending today our emphasis has been on the son so many things I wanted to study in Hebrews and bring today and you know I kept happening seated at the right hand of the majesty on high Father, what what will you have me study today? Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm teaching we see Jesus as you know, Father. What should I emphasize Sunday morning? Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So every time I go to the study, this is my fourth edit. I do edit one, print it out, just in case something crashes. Everything crashes and burns. I got edit one, and I come here with edit one. Then I do edit two. Then I do edit three. This is edit four. I'll do edit five and six before I get it out in print. And it still won't be good. Still won't be. It'll still be rough. So the thought, when the thought hovers and won't let anything else interrupt, but seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, then I should make the message something like seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. I think see That's what I'm learning. I've only learned this after many, many years of exegeting, how to be obedient to the spirit of grace. And I don't always hear him. He's a perfect teacher. I'm not a perfect student. And so that's what I pray that I would be able to hear his voice today if you hear his voice. And I've been taught, we never hear God's voice today. Well, then how come it says today if you hear his voice? Still small voice. Still small voice. Hearing doesn't mean audible. It means there's something in the heart that receives an impression by the ever-living God. He's not a dead God who's an idol with hands that can't feel and feet. In fact, Jesus has hands that have feeling that felt nails go through them. He has feet that have feeling with a spike that was driven through it. He has a heart that feels what you feel and when you go through what you go through he feels what you're going through feels it feels it he feels that's a big word today feels as a noun i got lots of feels well who doesn't i don't i'm not governed by them but i know what it's like to have oh here's a new emotion i never felt before it's horrible Oh, here's a new feeling. Here's a thought that came into my head for that's what the enemy does. He places a thought in your head and you go, oh, that's terrible. And then he takes it away. And then you're left with the anxiety of the thought without the memory of what the thought was that made you anxious. And so the Lord knows all that we've, he feels what we go through and goes through it feeling what we feel. You don't under, do you understand this? Do you grasp this? In all their sufferings, he suffered with them. Isaiah 63 9. He has eyes and they see. He has ears and they hear your prayers. He has nostrils and they smell the offerings of your life going up to the Father as a fragrant aroma. He has hands and they feel. He has feet and they walk. He has a mouth and he speaks. Today, our emphasis then has been on the son, also our high priest, who has sat down and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Then why did Stephen see him standing up? Because he can stand up too, you know. He has feet and he can stand up on them. And maybe when you say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, he'll be standing up for you to welcome you, to embrace you. Oh, welcome. Good to see you. Well, it's been good to see you, and now it's great to see you, Lord Jesus. We've all considered today the soteriological implications of this, the saving implications of the son at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those whose minds are stayed on him. One translation of Isaiah 26.3 says, he or she whose mind is stayed on such a great high priest, Seated in the heavens, the Bible promises, are kept in perfect peace. You want to be kept in perfect peace? That's a pretty good thing for nowadays. Those whose minds are stayed on him are kept in perfect peace rather than being continually rattled by the anxiety that characterizes the evil age. Nothing characterizes this present evil age. More than the attack of anxiety. And we are not rattled by it. What do you think Jesus was saying when he was revolutionary in his. Counsel. Don't worry about anything. Well, that goes totally against the age. Don't worry about what you shall put on or what you shall eat. Or where you shall get your hand sanitizer because it's all off the shelves. Don't give any thought. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil and they don't spin. And they're prettier and more beautiful than Solomon was when he came to his coronation. All dressed in glory. Don't worry about anything. Cuts across the grain of the whole anxious age. The spirit of which says, worry about everything. Martha, Martha, Jesus said, no doubt smiling. You are careful and anxious about so many things. Mary's chosen the good thing, the thing your sister Mary's doing. I don't want to make you guys have sibling rivalry, but she's chosen the one thing that's needful. The more she sits at my feet is the more she sees me. The more she sees me, the more her mind is kept in perfect peace, and she's not anxious and troubled about many things. Martha, you're the best theologian in the family, better than Lazarus, better than Mary. You prove that in John 11, 25 to 27. But you're still a little careful, a little troubled. He wasn't blasting her for crying out loud. It was a dear friend. He was giving a gentle elbow. So today people say, well, just elbow each other. I don't recommend that. Picture this. Cough in your elbow. Now elbow each other. Oh, that's a great idea. That's not. We see Jesus. Let me get back to sanity. We see Jesus like Peter. He, We're called to a life that isn't natural or normal. We're called to, in a metaphorical way, walk on water. Come on, Peter. Well, you mean, yeah. But it's not concrete. It's uh, water. Come here. We see Jesus, but with Peter who walked on water, as long as his gaze was fixed on Jesus. So with us there are rising waves whirling winds around us impending things shall impending things separate us from the love of god no so we fix our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy that was set before him not only endured the cross but guess what hebrews 12:2 says He endured the cross, but not only that, but guess what then it says? And this blew me away yesterday. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured contradiction and abuse and insult and mockery of sinners. He endured the cross. But he's now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. So let's go to him outside the camp, says Hebrews thirteen thirteen, And as we go to him, let's keep our eyes fixed on him. That's the, the ticket. Let's go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, because we're bearing his testimony. Among other things, that may also mean stop being cloistered in your own little safe space. You might mock others for trying to find one, but you live in one. Well, If I go outside the safe space and bear the testimony of the Lord, I could be criticized. I could be mocked. Someday I could be dispossessed of my property. Someday I could be imprisoned. These people, someday, you haven't yet striven against sin to the point of blood, but some of you are ready to in this audience. If it's Nero's Rome and it's between 64 and 68, the fire that Nero started himself will be blamed on the little house church in Rome. And some will die. Let's go outside the camp to him. And as we go, the ticket is keep your eyes and hearts fixed on him. That's why we assemble together. You know why we come to church? Not so that we have a good attendance record. We come to church, we assemble together as we, because we see a day approaching. We see a day approaching. We imagine a moment approaching in which he comes to receive us to himself. Don't let your hearts be troubled and anxious. I'm going away, but I'll come again and receive you to myself. While I restore all things in the universe, I'll receive you to myself too. So that where he is, we may be also. So that where I am, you may be also. John fourteen three. And this is why we go out to others. This is why we go out to others. Bearing his testimony. Even though of course we risk. Receiving their reproach. At least at first. For everyone who reproaches you. Look at them as a future convert. To your hope. Your faith. Your love. And to the salvation, deed that's already been done. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We do understand why we gather. We assemble together for the purpose of encouragement because we see, those of us who are here today, we have we can't live without this expectation of the coming of our Savior. It's with us, whether we're conscious of it or unconscious. And be. We see this day approaching, and so we are not of the crowd that recedes and withdraws back into sin nature control of the soul. We are those who pursue and proceed and live by faith. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. We ask